Well, why don't we begin here? It's about 7.15, and we'll kind of go ahead and start, get started here. My name is Bill Combs, and uh, this is a class in Philippians. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness to us this day and your blessings through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Father, for uh, this church and the opportunity to study the Word of God here in this place. We ask your blessing upon each class member that this class might be of benefit and help, might encourage each one of us in our Christian lives, give us greater knowledge and understanding and desire for the Word of God and for the will of God in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I've got some notes here. I guess has everybody got the, the notes here? And uh, we'll just start right out here on page uh, 2 here. Forgot my Bible tonight. <laughs> Everything is pretty much here, but I do have my Bible on my phone, so I am. But uh, I was bringing my big NIV study Bible, my great big wide print thing, because I was I was gonna in case I needed to refer to it. But you know, old age how it is. You got the <laughs> had the computer to stuff down here and the Bible here, and I just walked out of my office and left it. Let's begin here on page two. This is a class in Philippians and. Uh, I just put a bibliography here uh, in case you were one of these energetic persons who ever wanted to read more fully on this. Uh, these are what we what are called commentaries on the book of Philippians. You can buy these in any bookstore, Amazon, and so forth. Uh, they're not necessary for the class or anything, but they're just more in-depth studies. If you're ever interested in looking more in-depthly at this, you might look at one of these. Come in, come in. It's all right, come in. You might look at one of those and uh, if you have any interest there. Uh, we've got an introduction here. We're going to cover some introductory materials tonight and kind of get into the text here a little bit. But I thought we would just go over some introductory materials about the book. And um, first of all, I thought we would, if I, this, let's see if this works now. Um, I wasn't sure who was in the class, because I know you have uh, younger believers, people who have been saved maybe not that long. And I, I was thinking back to the days when I was uh, uh, a teenager and I was going to a Southern Baptist church. I was, I was unsaved, but I was raised, you know, going to church occasionally. I've tried to get out of it as much as I could, you know, but I can remember going to and, you know, I could understand the Gospels, but sometimes we'd read the Gospels and sometimes we'd read the Epistles, but I didn't really understand what the connection was. No, nobody was really explaining anything to us. I thought I would just, for a moment, we would just kind of rest here and think about what we're studying here when we're studying Philippians. If we look at the New Testament, um, this is sort of how it's broken down as far as types of literature. I'm sure you're all familiar with this. We've got the Gospels, of course, which are you know, generally sort of biographical stories about Christ and his ministry and so forth. We've got the Book of Acts, which kind of is a separate category, which is the history of the early church and so forth. And in that history of the early church, we find a lot about certain apostles, mainly Paul and Peter mainly. But we find out about one of the apostles we call Paul. Remember, Christ had 12 apostles. One of them was a defector, Judas. But Paul wasn't among those 12, you remember. Paul was, of course, saved later on on the Damascus Road, you remember, in Acts chapter 9. Uh, 
Paul was born in Tarsus, and we'll see, show that on a map a little here later. He was born outside of the Holy Land. He came to the Holy Land. He came to uh, Jerusalem when he was a young man, probably around the age of 12 or 13. So he was probably around when Christ was uh, on earth and, and ministering and so forth. Most people think Paul was born maybe about five, ten years after Christ was born. Come in, come in. Come in, come in. Um, they think he was born maybe about five or ten years. Did y'all get the notes? Did you happen to pick the... Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. We won't need them anyway. So about five or ten years after, um, after Christ was born... So Paul was probably in Jerusalem when Christ was having his ministry, but Paul never refers to that. Uh, he was a Pharisee, he was becoming a Pharisee. We don't know anything about that, but he got saved, and then God used him, you remember, to write 13 of the New Testament books, these letters or epistles here, Romans through Philemon. This is how they are in our Bible. They're actually there uh, by uh, length, so... The reason they're in the order they're in in the New Testament is they've just been traditionally placed there by how long they are, not, not, not when they were written. The first one written was probably Galatians was the first one written. Then First and Second Thessalonians was written. Um, first and Second Corinthians, then Romans. The later ones written were Ephesians, our book, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and then First, Second Timothy, and Titus. So... Our books were actually, the book we were looking at, Philemon, was written much later than these other epistles. So God used Paul to write 13 of those epistles. He used some other men to write some others, and there's the book of Revelation. And so these epistles are actually letters written by the Apostle Paul to churches and to individuals. Remember 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus are sometimes called the pastoral epistles because these men were like pastors sort of under the Apostle Paul, and so they're called pastoral. They, have, they deal with pastoral matters and things like that. And Philemon, of course, was written to a, a person in the church at Colossae who was a friend of Paul's and who, remember, Paul had found this runaway slave Onesimus and so forth. So we're interested in Philippians, and we'll look at the timeline here a little later of when exactly this was written. But this is a letter. I mean, if I was God and I was trying to communicate with people down on the human race, this is not exactly how I would do it. Uh, I mean, you think, I would just write a textbook. I'm a teacher, and so I'd just write a textbook, and here's what you need to know about this, and here's what you know about But that's not the way God has given us the New Testament revelation. He's given us these types of literature, and interesting, he's given us these letters that Paul wrote to churches, and in those letters we find the truth that God wants us to know. So we have to look at it in that, that vein. I'll start off here by just looking at, at uh, authorship, just to say who is the author of this. And of course the Bible tells us in Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, uh, it says, um, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to our God's holy people, and so forth. Paul is the author, and he also mentions Timothy, who is with him at the time. Timothy is, was his, one of his companions, was his kind of son in the ministry. So the Apostle Paul is the author here. He's actually named as the author. I just say that because we don't know who wrote every book in the, in the Bible. The, some of the books, many of the books are anonymous. 
I mean, the Gospel of John is anonymous. It doesn't say John wrote it. The Gospel of Luke is anonymous. It doesn't say Luke wrote it. It, it, it doesn't say Mark wrote it. it doesn't say Matthew doesn't, doesn't tell us who wrote these books. Now, we get indications inside the books, and there's tradition. So we feel pretty strongly that these were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's not a lot of doubt about that, but it doesn't actually say it in the book, you know. Um, now, these books, of course, Paul's epistles, he actually says he wrote them, and so we read that right in verse 1. And as I say, the language and style of the epistle fit well with the other accepted Pauline writings. Let's talk about the destination or the city of Philippi itself. Uh, here's a map of the ancient world. This is the Roman world of the first century. This would be the area that Rome controlled. Now, eventually they controlled much more. They actually controlled more even at this time into Spain and so forth. But here we see, of course, Rome over here. Here's Philippi over here that we're interested in. This isn't what we know as Greece today. Here's Turkey. Here's the Holy Land down here, Palestine, as we might call it. Um, Here's Jerusalem down here. Here's North Africa and so forth. And so Paul is writing this letter to this church here at Philippi, a church that he established, remember, and as we'll see in Acts chapter 16. So there's Philippi. You can see its location there. I say here in the notes, it's about 10 miles uh, off the coast there. You can see here's the Aegean Sea, and here's Philippi, and here's the port there, Neapolis, and it's about 10 miles off of that port. This uh, city, as I say here in the notes, was founded around 360 B.C., 360 years before Christ. Um, it originally had the name Crinides, which means springs, because there were a lot of springs there, natural occurring water and so forth, and that's one reason why you found a city. You have to establish a city near water, and there was natural occurring springs there. Um, it got its name, Philippi, from a man by the name of Philip of Macedon. You can see here, um, this is called Macedonia. This is the Roman province of Macedonia. You see that blue line there? And then there's another province here called Achaia, where Corinth is down here. This is showing the way the Romans divided this area up into provinces. But before the Romans took this area, the Romans conquered this area in the 2nd century B.C., so around 150 B.C., the Romans conquered this area. Before that time, it was controlled by the Greeks, Alexander the Great. I don't know if you've heard of Alexander the Great or not, but he was a famous Greek who conquered all of the known world by about 330 B.C., 330 B.C. He had conquered the whole sort of known Middle Eastern world there. And uh, it was his father, actually, as I mentioned here, Philip of Macedon, who actually established this city, um, and he named it after himself. Why not, right? Name Name, name the city after yourself. Uh, then the Romans conquered this city, um, and uh, in 168 B.C., the Romans conquered this, and they, divide, they divided this place up into, and, into, um, was coming in, into districts, into uh, provinces, and then they divided it sub- up into districts. Philippi was part of the first district here. 
This city uh, gets a lot of attention in the ancient world, as I mentioned there under B there, because of uh, Julius Caesar, because of Anthony and Octavian. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar much with Julius Caesar. Remember when Julius Caesar, the famous dictator of Rome, he was assassinated. Uh, uh, he's in all the plays and stuff, you know, so forth. When he was assassinated, his death was avenged, avenged by his, uh, his uh, nephew Octavian and Anthony, uh, Mark Anthony. And uh, they defeated uh, some of the assassins, Brutus, remember Brutus, uh, they defeated them at Philippi here. So this city became a well-known city because uh, Caesar's assassins were defeated there. And because they were uh, defeated there, the city was uh, given favorable status. As I mentioned in 31 BC, 31 years about before the birth of Christ, the city was given the status of a Roman colony. What that meant was Rome, throughout, its, throughout the, the, the Roman world, Rome would establish what they call colonies. That is, they would uh, take land and they would, uh, they would uh, divide this land up among uh, people who were Romans, who had Roman citizenship, and were looking for places to live. Normally these were soldiers. Um, when, when in the ancient world, when you conquered a territory, you, you owned it all. <laughs> you got it. I mean, uh, you lost everybody who lived there, lost their rights, their land, and everything. When Rome conquered this, they owned everything. And so, one of the things Rome did was they had huge armies, huge numbers of legions. And these people, after 20 years of service, they were, could retire after 20 years. Rome didn't want these people, these soldiers, coming back into the city of Rome because you'd have all these soldiers back there. They, they could easily might be manipulated into re- causing revolt or, or, or overthrowing the army. You know, it's like Egypt today. It's, you know, who controls Egypt today? Well, it's the military there who's controlling really things. So what, the, what they did was Rome would send these, uh, they would give these people land. They would give these soldiers, these retired soldiers, land out there in the provinces. So as we looked at that, uh, that map here, here's the city of Rome. They didn't want all these people coming back into the city of Rome. Uh, they would put them out into the province, not here, they'd put them out into provinces. All over here, they would establish colonies. And here is Philippi as one of those colonies. And what that meant was, we're going to give you land and you're going to have the rights of being a Roman citizen. So it's just like you were in Rome. You have all the rights of Roman citizenship. You're exempt from certain taxes and so forth. So it's, a, it's a, like a little bit of Rome right there, in a sense, at Philippi. And so that's how, uh, that's how um, Philippi got started. Uh, remember, Paul goes there in Acts chapter 16. We'll look at that a little mom- a moment. And you remember the story there in Acts chapter 16. The first person who is saved is Lydia. You remember that lady who is a, who is a businesswoman, the seller of purple. Paul comes there. She's saved. And then that demon-possessed girl is saved. And then the jailer is saved. We know at least those three people are saved. And uh, um, when Paul is arrested there, I've got a verse here. Notice Acts 16, 21. It says... They brought them before the magistrates, that is, they brought Paul and Silas before the magistrates, and said, These men, Paul and Silas, are Jews, 
and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So I was just reading that to show that they consider themselves Romans. They're living here in what we call Greece today, in Roman Greece, but they thought we're, we're Romans, we're just like Romans, and these people are advocating customs. This was a trumped-up charge, of course, but the point is Philippi was a Roman colony. People considered themselves Romans there. Uh, many of the people did, and it was a very important city. It was an important city also because it was on this road called the Via Ignatia. Um, Rome, one of the things the Roman, Romans did was they built roads all throughout their empire, lots of roads. Uh, here's one of them called the Via Ignatia, named after a, 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 a political person, a proconsul who actually got this road started being built. But it, it comes right over here from the Bosphorus, right over here you know, into Turkey, Istanbul or Constantinople over here today, <laughs> right over here to Derechium. You can get a boat and go over to Rome here. So this is Philippi. It's right on an important trade, right on an important route here. Um, uh, so it was an important uh, dropping off point, or stopping off point. Here's uh, what uh, archaeologists and others think that uh, this is from the NIV Study Bible. It's just a map showing kind of what Philippi looked like. Here's the, the Via Ignatia running through. I'm going to show you some actual slides here in a moment of the ruins of Philippi, but this is a kind of reconstruction. So here's the main Roman road running right through the city. And uh, here's the forum. We'll look at that in a moment. All Roman towns, all Roman cities had a forum, a town square. Uh, the Greeks call it the agora, a marketplace, a town square. If you go to Italy today, you see these piazzas. That's, that's just the same thing. They're just big squares, town squares like that. This is, this is how we'll see the theater here in a moment. And there's usually, it's usually in a valley, and there's a hill up here on Acropolis where there's a temple, some sort of temple usually up here. And this is how a lot of Roman cities are uh, set up. So Philippi was certainly an important city linking uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, important areas in Rome. Let me come back to that. Uh, at the bottom of the page two here, I talk a little bit about the church at Philippi. Let's just remember exactly how this church was established. This church was established by the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul was an apostle, but he was mainly a church planner. He was commissioned by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles, right? And his main purpose was to go out and win Gentiles and form them into local churches, which he did wherever he went. He would try to establish a church gather people together, then set up leadership and so forth. He would try to go back and visit them. He would write letters to these churches, and that's what we have. He probably wrote a lot more than the 13 we have, but we have God has seen fit to give us these 13. Let's just review for a moment exactly how this thing got started. Remember, Paul's base was in Antioch. Uh, Paul's home church, his base of operation was the church at Antioch. And from that base of Antioch, he had three missionary journeys outlined in the book of Acts. The first is in Acts 13 and 14. Now, in that first journey, he actually travels over here to Cyprus, remember? He comes up here and he goes into this area here, Galatia, right in this area. 
But on the second missionary journey, he takes a different route. He comes up through uh, Syria and Cilicia here on his first missionary journey. Uh, as I say, this is, sorry, his second missionary journey, as I say here, this is approximately A.D. 50. So remember, Christ was crucified around A.D. 30. Paul, A.D. 30, 30 years uh, after Christ's birth, he was probably crucified around A.D. 30. Some debate about those dates there, but generally A.D. 30. Then Paul was saved on Acts chapter 9, maybe 33, something like that, 32, 33. Uh, and this is uh, A.D. 50, so this is some years later. Uh, Paul has been on his first missionary journey now. He's on his second missionary journey. As I say here, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke make up the missionary team eventually. Actually, when we start out here, it's just Paul and Silas. In Acts chapter 15, verse 41, Paul and Silas decide they're going to go out and revisit the churches that Paul and Barnabas had established on that first missionary journey. But remember, Paul and Barnabas got into a little debate because Barnabas wanted to take Mark along and and Mark had deserted them on the first missionary journey and Paul said, no, I'm not taking him. So Paul chose this man Silas. So it's actually here Paul and Silas who head out north from Antioch and they're coming through Syria and Cilicia. This is where Paul is from. He's from Tarsus right here. This is his hometown. So he's coming back into this area. Uh, Acts chapter 16, it says they came to Derbe and Lystra. And when they come into this area, this is where they find Timothy. Timothy had probably been saved on Paul's first missionary journey because he had established a church here. And so they pick up Timothy here. And then the three of them, it says, travel through Galatia. They pass through Phrygia and Galatian region. This is the region Paul had evangelized on his first missionary journey. So now it's Paul and Timothy and Silas are going back through this region again now. So Paul decides that he wants to go over here to where Ephesus is at. at. This is the province of Asia. If you look back here, you can see this is another Roman province. Um, If you can see these blue lines here. Here's the province of what the Romans called the province of Asia. The capital was Ephesus. And Paul apparently had it in mind when he left Galatia to travel due west and go here apparently uh, to Ephesus. But remember the text says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. So next Paul decides he's going to go up into this north area here. He's going to go up into Bithynia. And again, the text says that you know God said, no, I don't want you going up there and so forth. And so he goes over to this port city of Troas, Acts chapter 16, verse 8. We're in Acts chapter 16, and of course Acts chapter 16 is where the city, is where we read about the uh, founding of the church at Philippi, the evangelization of Philippi, and so forth. And so they, uh, there is Troas, just wanted to show you, you know, we're looking, we're looking north here from Troas, and as you look north here, um, you're on the coast here. This is what you see. You see those islands there? Paul's going to travel over here. You can see these islands up here in the picture. Um, nothing, nothing much remains of Troas today. Now Paul, remember, gets that Macedonian call. Acts chapter 16, you remember he, he has this dream and he has this vision and says, come over and help us. So they, 
Paul doesn't know exactly what to do, apparently, because he, he, didn't, he wasn't allowed to go to Ephesus. He wasn't going to Bithynia. And he gets this, come over and help us. So he immediately decides, we decided that God wanted us to go there. So he goes, they get a boat, and they go over to the stop at this island, Thamathrace, and then they travel over to Neapolis. Neapolis is the port city. It's about 10 miles from Philippi there. So he travels over there. Um, now remember, this is his second missionary journey. He hasn't established any new churches yet. He just visited those churches in Galatia that he established on his first missionary journey. Now, now we're in the new territory where the gospel has never been before. No one has ever taken the gospel. And we've actually crossed over into Europe, technically, geographically. This is Asia here. So the dividing line between Asia and Europe. This is Asia this way. This is Europe. So Paul has now come into Europe with the gospel for the first time. Here's Neapolis. This is what it looks like today, Kavala. So this is the, the, the modern city. The ancient city is somewhere buried underneath there, but you can't exactly go down and tear that stuff up and, <laughs> and do anything. Not unless you're in Israel. If you're in Israel today and you decide to build something, the people in Israel, the, people, the, the contractors there, they, they hate this. But the minute they start to build something, if they, if they find anything ancient, they have to stop immediately and call in the archaeologists, and they have to document all this and look and see what's buried below. Then they can, if they can start building again. But, of course, you can't do that here. Here is the port, the ancient port here uh, where Paul would have come into. So from there, they travel up to Philippi on this road. Here's that part of the Ignatian Way that goes to Philippi. Generally, this road is about... It's not that wide here, but generally uh, this road is about 20 foot wide. Roman roads varied. They, they could be 13 or 14 foot wide. They could be almost up to 30 foot wide. It just depended on where they're at and so forth. You know, I can't tell that one there, but it doesn't look 20 foot wide. But usually the nation way is said to be about 20 foot wide. So you had these stones uh, throughout there. So it was a, you know, a fairly good road for that time. And here is uh, Philippi. Remember we talked about how in that previous thing there was this Acropolis. There was this mountain where there would be a temple or something. And down here in the valley, this flat plain is where the city would be at. And here's where the ancient city. I just thought I'd show you some things. Here's, there's what Philippi looks like today. There's ancient Philippi from above. And that rectangular there area, it's about 150 foot by 300 foot. Kind of a rectangle. It is a rectangular that's the forum. There's the, there's the ruins of Philippi, just some stones there today. And there's the Acropolis. There's the forum there, as you can see. There used to be columns all up here. It would have been a very beautiful thing at the time. There's still some pillars there left. There's the, would have been shops. These were these were just all stone. And then usually uh, you would have a, a, a roof that was made usually of, of wood beams covered with dirt and kind of a sod thing, a hard sod kind of thing. But that's all destroyed, of course, with time. Here's that Ignatian Way, the main road that ran right through Philippi that we saw before. This is the road Paul would have come on, come in, in on from Neapolis to come into Philippi. 
And here is that, uh, if you remember that map before we saw the theater, most of these Roman towns had a theater. And this is the one in uh, Philippi. Uh, as I mentioned on, on page three, um, Paul goes to Philippi in Acts chapter 16, if you remember the story there. And normally Paul, when he would go to a city, being a Jew, he would go to the synagogue first. It was a, just a place to go because he was a Jew. He could go there and find religious people who knew the Old Testament. And he would usually preach the gospel, first of all, to these Jews. There would be Gentiles always there too, Gentiles who would go into the synagogue, who were interested in Judaism and so forth. And sometimes he'd win some of those and so forth. In, in Philippi, there was no synagogue. Uh, there was this river, uh, the Gangaitis River here, uh, right, out, right outside of Philippi. As I mentioned in the notes here, according to Jewish law, uh, the Mishnah, it says that if there, was, if there weren't ten families, ten, head of, ten households, uh, then you didn't have to establish a synagogue. But if you had ten households, Jewish households, you're supposed to actually have a physical building, a synagogue. And apparently there weren't, wasn't a big Jewish population here at all. So the Jews who were there were meeting out by this river. Remember in Acts chapter 16, if you read that. And Paul goes out by the river, and there he meets this woman, Lydia, who is a Gentile. She's called a God-fearer. This term is used out through the book of Acts to describe these people who were Gentiles but they believed that you know Judaism was probably right. They had various degrees of belief, but they thought there was one God. It's probably the God of, of Judaism and so forth. Uh, so they were believers in that sense, but they weren't full converts to Judaism. Uh, they weren't really proselytes, a, a full convert. You can, I mean, any of us could convert to Judaism tomorrow if we wanted to. We'd have to become proselytes, and we'd be, actually be converts. But these people, God-fearers, weren't converts. They were just people who believed in Judaism, thought it was probably right. They went to the synagogue to hear the Bible, hear the Old Testament and so forth. And Paul there found Lydia, and of course she was saved. Paul spoke, remember that says the, the Lord opened her heart. She was regenerated, she believed the gospel, she was saved, and she's the first convert there in Philippi. Um, as I say here, Philippi was probably mainly a Gentile church because we have the jailer, we have the demon-possessed woman. We just know about those three, and there's not a Jewish synagogue, so it's probably a mainly a Gentile church. Some of the churches Paul established had a good number of Jews in them. You know, uh, they were formed from a Jewish base out of the synagogue, but this one probably didn't. Um, so there is Paul. Uh, in Philippi, he establishes the church. He leaves and goes on. He travels on to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, establishes another church. Most people think Luke stayed behind. Luke probably stayed behind. So we have Luke, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy leave, and Luke stays behind at Philippi. Um, so, let's, so that's Philippi. Let's talk about the place and date of writing. Now, remember, I showed you that chart there of the, of the epistles of Paul, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but I said they're actually in the order of the length that they are, not when they were written. Galatians was written first, 
then First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians. Philippians is way down the list. As I say here, Paul was in prison at the time that this was written. Paul is in Rome, apparently, at this time. Uh, every indication is Paul is in Rome, and he's writing back to the church at Philippi. Uh, this is the tradition, and it, it doesn't say in the book, it doesn't say, I, Paul, am in Rome, so we, we don't know for certain. But there are, there are some indications that he probably was in Rome, and early tradition says that he was in Rome. Most people think he probably was in Rome. Now remember, what was Paul doing in Rome? Well, you remember if you follow the history of the book of Acts, Paul has his three missionary journeys. He goes back to Jerusalem. He gets arrested in the temple area, you remember. He's taken to Caesarea over here uh, as a prisoner, and he's held prisoner in Caesarea for two years, you remember. He meets a couple of uh, a Roman uh, proconsuls there. And finally, he appeals to Caesar, and he's shipped off to Rome here. He has that sea voyage, you know, that shipwreck, and he, they, they, that the shipwrecks at Malta here. And then he gets another ship, and they travel eventually up to Rome. And that's Acts 28. So the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome. And it says he's there for two years in Rome, under guard in his own hired house, but still uh, under Roman guard. He's under house arrest. He's sort of like those people are in, uh, you know, in other countries where they put them under house arrest. I was just watching the news before I came, and that uh, the former president of Morrissey, you know, of Egypt, he's under house arrest. Uh, so there, the, the, the military has him under house arrest, and he was just allowed to call his family and some. So Paul was there under house arrest. He was guarded by the Roman soldiers. He was there under house arrest, and that's when Paul is writing this letter back to the church at Philippi. Um, as I say here on number two, the internal, when I say internal, that is when we look inside the book and look at various verses in the book, it seems to indicate that Paul was in Rome. I say here, the outcome of Paul's trial would lead to death or acquittal. If you read, as we read the book, we'll see that Paul said, I'm either going to die or I'm going to get free, one or the other. I'm in, I'm in bonds, one or the other. And so that's what would happen in Rome. Rome was the highest court, you know, that he could be in. He was there before the emperor's uh, court system and so forth. Uh, I mentioned number two here. The place from which Paul wrote had what's called a praetorium. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says this. He says... Um, uh, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to every, everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So Paul says it's become clear through the palace guard. That's how the NIV translates it. Uh, the word there is the word praetorium, which uh, probably represents uh, the praetorium guard. Remember I said that the Roman army was a huge affair. They had these legions, uh, numerous legions. Uh, and they had three different... Uh, the Roman military was generally divided up into three areas. Uh, the highest ranking or the, the, high, the, best, the best pay and, and the most prestigious soldiers were in, were in a group called the Praetorian Guard. These were, these were like... I guess it'd be like... I don't know why I get these Middle Eastern... Uh, 
<laughs> analogies, but I was thinking about uh, the, pro- the Republican Guard. Remember we heard about in Iraq, we heard all about this Republican Guard. These are the elite troops, you know. Well, the Praetorian Guard were the elite troops. They were the emperor's elite troops. They only had to serve for 16 years. Wouldn't you like that, 16 years to retire? 16 years and they could retire. Most of the guys were in the legions. That was 20 years. Now, if you weren't a Roman citizen, you could be in what's called the auxiliaries. You had to serve 25 years before you could retire. But there Paul is saying through the the palace guard, he's using the term for a praetorian, which suggests that he's in Rome being guarded by the emperor's personal bodyguard there. Uh, So these suggestions uh, indicate Paul is in Rome. It doesn't absolutely make uh, a lot of difference to us. It, It helps us a little bit interpreting some things in the book if we know kind of where Paul was at and what he was doing at the time. It can help us in some interpretation of various things. Um, so I say in number three here, most likely Philipp- Philippians was written from Rome. Now that's not in the Bible. That's not inspired. You don't have to believe that <laughs> because it doesn't say it. But most likely it was written from Rome and that's about 62. AD 62 is what we're talking about here. So if we looked at this chart here, which kind of gives us a chronology here, we can see um, how things are. Now, this has got Paul's, this chart I, I stole off the internet here, so, but I, I like the dates on it pretty well. Uh, but it says 88. Most people put Paul's birth about maybe 85 or something. 12 to 13 years he goes to Jerusalem, educated by Rabbi Gamaliel. You know, that's, that's true and all that. Uh, and we see his missionary journeys. His first missionary journey here is listed here, um, 46 to 49. This is Acts 13 and 14. And then the second missionary journey we just talked about. Uh, this is 50 to 52. And um, this is the journey we were talking about. Well, Paul then makes a third missionary journey in the book of Acts, Acts 18, 23 to 21, 15. Then he's arrested in Jerusalem, and then he's under house arrest here. So we're talking about around A.D. 62 here. So we're in the latter part of Paul's life. Um, it's, it's, we, don't know, we don't know what happened to Paul exactly after Acts 28. Remember in Acts 28 it says, Paul is in Rome under house arrest for two years. And that's about all we know. Everything else we know, we have to gauge from the epistles. We have to look and see what it says. Most people think, uh, most Bible teachers and so forth, think that Paul was under house arrest for two years. He got out. He made some more travels around. He was arrested again, brought back to Rome And there he was beheaded at Rome. Tradition says he was beheaded at Rome. Tradition says Peter was crucified upside down at Rome. These may be right. We don't know absolutely. There's not much reason to doubt that. So this is in the latter part of Paul's life. These are these epistles he wrote from the city of Rome in the latter part of his life. Um, He's here in Rome, AD 62. So he's been very experienced, had all these missionary journeys and so forth. Let's talk about occasion and purpose. Um, 
I forgot my big NIV study Bible. I was going to bring it because I was interested to look at the NIV study Bible. It's got these introductions, you know, to every book. It's a nice little introduction to the books and so forth. And uh, because I didn't say anything about theme, theme. When I was doing the notes here, Eddie Martin sent me a, sent a note said, do you want to put something on the front here uh, besides just Philippians? Do you want to say, uh, I forgot what he said, joy in Christ or something? You know, he's trying to hype it up a little bit, you know, <laughs> trying to hype up this class a little bit. So he wanted to put something, and I said, no, no, don't put that down there. <laughs> and the reason I said that is because... Um, and, it, and I didn't say anything here in the notes here about theme because when many people try to study the Bible, they'll try to say, okay, let's learn a little bit about the book. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? Who were the readers? When was it written? And so forth. And they'll say, what is the theme? Or the general? Is there a theme? Well, that's hard to say about New Testament books as a whole and about Philippians. It's hard. That is, a theme is kind of a central idea. Uh, it's kind of a central idea, a central topic. And I was looking at the NIV Study Bible, and, it did, and for every book, it's got a theme. If you look at the notes, it says theme. And the one on Philippians was something about being joyous and persevering in the faith or something. I forgot what it said, you know. But I often tell my students, because I, I teach 1 Corinthians quite a bit, I often say there's no theme for 1 Corinthians. And like the NIV Study Bible says for 1 Corinthians, it says something like, Paul is writing a letter to answer the questions of the, and deal with problems in Corinth. That's not a theme. When Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, he's writing, responding to their letter that he, they wrote to him. He's dealing with problems in the church. There's no theme particularly there. There are topics, there are subjects, but we'd like to believe sometimes there's a central theme. And sometimes with some books, you can kind of see it. Maybe Ephesians, you might see a kind of a central thought that runs through it. And people have searched and searched about Philippians. So one that you all hear is joy. The theme of Philippians is joy. I don't think quite... I think joy is a mood. It, it's certainly a part of Philippians. He talks a lot about rejoicing, but I'm, I'm not sure that's the central theme of it. Some people say uh, that uh, perseverance is, or, sta- or staying, uh, standing fast in the faith, continuing in the faith. So some of those commentaries I mentioned at the beginning, they'll all say, this might be the theme, or this might be the theme. They have different ideas, and they look at different verses. It's, it's, there's no consensus on that particular idea. Some people say it's what's called a letter of friendship. People in the ancient world often wrote letters uh, to other people to establish a friendship relationship. Uh, to say, you're my friend, I'm your friend, we have a mutual bond. There's a number of examples of these. We've got thousands and thousands of ancient letters, thousands of ancient letters from the ancient world. And so people study those and they try to see, is Paul imitating any of that kind of style? Is he doing anything? It's not clear that, that he is. What we do know about these letters is they are what's called occasional. Notice I say occasion and purpose. What do I mean by occasion? I'm saying, what was the reason Paul wrote this letter at this time? And most all of Paul's letters are occasional letters. That is, they were written because of some circumstance in his life that prompted the letter. That often happens to us, right? I mean, we used to, nobody writes letters now, we write emails now, but we still often write them because of an occasion. Something happens in our lives. We hear about somebody who's sick, so we, we, we write them a letter, we send them a card. They're just they're, they're spurred on by the occasion. 
versus, say, a novel, somebody who writes a novel, they're just writing a, 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 a piece of a literature or something, or somebody writes a textbook, they may or may not have an occasion. But Paul's letters were written because of missionary circumstances. And this was written because Paul is in Rome and he's heard some news from Philippi. He's gotten some news from Epaphroditus and others about what's happening in Philippi, and that spurs him to write this letter. So that was the occasion. And what is his purpose? Well, I just mentioned a number of factors here, and we'll have to look at these as we go through the book. I say there was the, the matter of Epaphroditus. He had been sent by Paul by the Philippian church. He had been sent to Paul by the Philippian church to, quote, 225, take care of Paul's needs. The Philippians had heard that Paul was ill, Now, we don't know anything about that in the book of Acts. We just know Philippians says Paul had gotten ill and uh, and and, and he had some needs. And and so they sent Epaphroditus to look after Paul, and Epaphroditus gets sick. And so therefore, Paul is writing back to the Philippians, telling them about Epaphroditus, uh, about his illness and so forth, He was sending Epaphroditus back with the letter. Epaphroditus is going back to Philippi with the letter. So Paul had a natural reason to write to the Philippians because Epaphroditus had been sent to Paul to help Paul in his struggles and his pains and his difficulties by the Philippian church. Epaphroditus had gotten ill, and now Paul is sending him back with a letter. So that's a good reason to write a letter, right? I mean, that's a good reason. This This man who the church has sent has performed admirably for Paul. Paul wants to write a letter thanking the Philippians. Number two, uh, Paul takes this opportunity to thank the Philippians for their generous gift to him. In chapter 4, Paul mentions that the Philippians had sent money to him. They had supported him. Remember I said when Paul left Philippi, the next place he goes is to a city called Thessalonica. And Paul says there in Philippians 4 that the Philippians were the only church that really supported him. They were the ones who were really concerned about him and supported him as a missionary. Paul's policy as a missionary was a policy that most missionaries adopt today. He talks a lot about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That policy was, Paul says, the person who preaches the gospel deserves to be supported by those who hear the gospel and receive the gospel. So your pastor, Paul would say, has the right to be supported by you. He's teaching you. uh, He's pastoring you as a church. He has the right, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 9, to be supported by you. And Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, I had the right to be supported by you. But Paul's practice as a missionary was, he says, whenever I go out and preach the gospel to a new area, I don't take any money from those people I'm preaching to. So whenever I go out to this area, I don't go out like a lot of people do on these crusades, you know, these evangelists who come in to Detroit or wherever and they take these offerings, you know, and take all the money and leave town, you know. Paul didn't do that. Paul said, I don't want to do that because I want, I want, to, I want to be an example of the freeness of the gospel. I don't want to go to your town, preach the gospel and take an offering because then you'll think you've got to pay to be saved. You've got to pay for the gospel. And Paul says, when I go to a town to preach, I don't take any money from the people I'm preaching to. 
But he was supported by those people later. If he went to another place, he would take offerings you know, later on. That's what he did at Philippi. He didn't take any money from Philippi, but when he left, they helped Paul. And they're sending money here to help him. So he wants to thank them for his generous giving. As I say, it's sometimes, some people say that's the real reason for writing. That's the main reason for writing this letter is it's a thank you letter. Paul wants to thank them for, and he, and he goes into great detail in chapter 4, thanking them profusely for their support for him uh, in his missionary endeavors. I mentioned number three here. Paul takes this opportunity to catch the Philippians up on his situation. I mean, they didn't have email. They didn't have telephones. A lot has gone on in Paul's life all this time. What's happened to this apostle who came here and established as a church? Well, now he's writing a letter to say, here's what's happened to me in all this period of time. Number four here I mentioned, Paul also wanted to warn the Philippians concerning some false teachers. So now we're getting into some of the problems at Philippi. Paul wrote letters, he had, he had good reasons for writing this letter. That is, he wanted to thank the Philippians, he wanted to tell them about Epaphroditus. These were good reasons, but there were also problems in the church. Now, there's not a lot of problems in the church at Philippi. It's not like we think about Corinth, which is just one problem seemingly after another. But as you read the letter, we can see there are some internal difficulties, there are some problems and we, we'll, we can learn from that. We can you know, see how these Christians uh, live their lives and we can see Paul's concern for some. And one of them was these false teachers in chapter 3. As I, as I also mentioned number 5 here, Paul wanted them to stand firm and be united. If there was a problem at Corinth, and we'll come across it time and time again, it's really... There seemed to be a little bit of problem with unity in the church. Now it gets pretty clear in chapter four. You remember there's these two women, Eudia <laughs> and Syndike, who are actually fighting each other. He actually mentions by name. I mean, you know it's pretty serious when Paul calls their names out. You don't. I mean, think of all Paul's epistles. How many times does he mention a troublemaker by name? Demas, you know, has forsaken me, and stuff like that. But he mentions these. Can you imagine living in? in Philippi. And these letters were taken there, and then they didn't just pass out copies, they just had one copy. They read it. So you're in church here, you know. <laughs> and I'm, and I, you know, and you're, and, and you're in church. And they read this letter, and, and Paul says, you know, Judea and Cindy, what can imagine how, what would they have thought? What would they have, <laughs> it would be embarrassing, wouldn't it, to hear your name called out in church as a problem, a, a problem maker. You know, this would be this would be quite, quite difficult. So, um, so certainly there was a problem of unity. And so you'll see as we go through this, the verses, we'll see a kind of a continual coming back to the problem of we need unity in Christ. We need to stand together. There was some disunity dis in the church. So I just wanted to give that sort of overall uh, introduction and uh, before we actually get in the text, and then we'll actually kind of helps us think back on some of these things as we look in the text. Let's look at page four for just a moment, and then we'll stop for tonight. We'll just kind of get into the introduction here before we get in the text. Uh, as I say here, the common letter form in the Greco-Roman period was had this threefold salutation. That is, when Paul wrote his letters. 
He wrote his letters like a lot of other people wrote their letters. We do too. I say, you know, when we used to write letters, we'd say, Dear Tom, you know, and then we'd sign it, uh, Sincerely, you know, Bill or something. You know, we have, we have a form that we did. Well, Paul, there was a standard kind of form in Paul's day, and Paul sort of used that form. It was A, as I say here, A, a person A, Paul writing to Timothy, and then the word greeting. And Paul generally follows that standard letter form. He kind of modifies it a little bit, as we'll see here. So we have plenty of these letters to compare with the Apostle Paul's letters. And Paul's letters are similar in many ways to other people's letters. But in many ways, they're different. They're not like other people's letters. Paul's letters are quite a bit longer. you know. They're, and Paul's letters are different in that they're really... They're not quite so private. They're not really private correspondence. They're meant to be read by a group of people. If I write a letter to some individual, I don't usually expect somebody else to read it. But Paul's writing a letter to a church, and he expects. Remember, he tells the Colossians, let the Laodiceans read your letter, and you read their letter, and so forth. So he tells the same thing to the Thessalonians. He expects these letters to be read. And God has used this writing of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippians God has seen fit to put that in the Bible so we can learn things about our Christian life, our Christian experience, what we're supposed to know. Now, we have to interpret it through the the filter of the first century. You have to remember Paul is writing to these people in the first century, and we'll have to translate that into how that works into the 20th century, but it it works pretty, pretty straightly because Paul is writing to a church, and we're members of a local church, and so it works pretty much the same way. So I've got it. This is the introduction, verses 1 through 11. And then um, I've got it outlined here. and uh, So you can look at these notes as we go along. You don't have to, to look at them every time, but i just kind of giving you a little outline and uh, uh, giving you a few notes about what, this sec- what each section here is about and what we're, we're studying in each section. Um, well, I think rather than try to start here and then stop. Since what time are we supposed to stop? About 7.15? 8.15, I mean 8.15, yeah. Why don't we just stop here for tonight and uh, then we'll get into the text next time. And uh, We won't actually be using the projector anymore. I just wanted to bring that in this time so we could look at those slides of the city and kind of get an idea of that. So we'll have a little more light here. It's a little dark over here as it is now. Why don't we close in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for this time together this evening. We ask you'll bless our understanding and study of this epistle that it might be profitable for us and our own Christian lives to grow in Christ, to love Christ, to be useful in your service. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.